Good morning. In today's headlines, 96 dead, hundreds still missing in Maui, a lawsuit and revelations about the emergency warning system. We have the stories for you. A Georgia grand jury indicts former President Trump in its 2020 election investigation and some controversy surrounding an apparent premature release of the document online. The transcript interview of an FBI whistleblower has been released. His testimony mirrors IR's whistleblower claims, alleging interference into an investigation of Hunter Biden. Some hospitals in the U.S. are still reporting disruptions over a week after a cyber attack hit a healthcare company. We hear from an expert on whether a ransom is expected and how healthcare systems can protect themselves. Bone-chilling exposure of China's organ harvesting industry, a doctor speaking under his real name gives a shocking first-hand experience. We have an exclusive report. His eyes were moving. Texas parents getting back lost time with their children thanks to a new law. But what does lost time mean? We spoke with some Texas fathers. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Tuesday, August 15th. Yes, it is. And Evelyn, it is a significant time in American history right now. Oh, yeah. Never has a former president been indicted four times. Yes. And we'll have to see how this plays out in court. As DA Fannie Willis says, everyone charged in the indictment is presumed innocent. And so we hope you're having a good morning. We're going to give you the details in this case. Right, a big update in former President Trump's Georgia 2020 election case. The Fulton County Grand Jury issued an indictment against Trump and 18 co-defendants last night. It accuses them of trying to overturn the 2020 election results in the state. Those charged include former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani and former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. All have been charged under Georgia's RICO Act, which is used to target members of organized crime groups. Defendants face between 5 to 20 years in prison if convicted. Trump is charged with racketeering, soliciting a public official, making false statements and conspiracy. The 2024 presidential candidate denies any wrongdoing. Here's a Georgia DA yesterday. The indictment alleges that rather than abide, abide by Georgia's legal process for election challenges, the defendants engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result. An indictment is only a series of allegations based on a grand jury's determination of probable cause to support the charges. It is now the duty of my office to prove these charges in the indictment beyond a reasonable doubt at trial. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis said yesterday she will try all 19 defendants together. The DA gave defendants a deadline of Friday afternoon next week to surrender voluntarily rather than face arrest. It's up to a judge to set the date of the trial. Willis says her office will propose it happens within the next six months. Trump says the case is a form of election interference and claims Democrat prosecutors waited to bring charges until the middle of his presidential campaign. Willis says her office bases decisions on the facts and the law and that the law is completely nonpartisan. 
The grand jury met for roughly 10 hours yesterday before handing up the 98-page indictment, but a bizarre instance occurred earlier in the day. The Georgia court briefly posted online, then removed a list of charges against Trump. And today's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Reuters first reported that Fulton County Courthouse posted online a two-page list of charges against former President Trump on Monday, but then took it down. The county website deleted the post without explanation, and the Fulton County District Attorney's Office said that no charges had been filed against Trump. The court's mysterious action came as a grand jury was still hearing testimony from witnesses in the Trump investigation. The apparently premature release of the charges sparked concerns about whether the accusations were being predetermined before the grand jurors voted. NTD's Stephania Cox spoke to Epic Times reporter Janice Heisel about the document's release. There are a lot of concerns out there about, you know, tainting the entire uh, process and showing that perhaps that these charges were already locked, stocked and barrel decided before the grand jury has voted, which is supposed to not that's not supposed to be how the process works. It's supposed to be the grand jury makes its own decision. Now, of course, we've all heard the old cliche about you can indict a ham sandwich if you're a prosecutor, uh, get the grand jury to go along with that. Uh, but the, the concern is that the grand jury is supposed to have some degree of independence and vote on the actual charges. Heisel says the biggest difference in a Georgia and federal indictment for Trump is his ability to pardon if reelected. Say that, you know, he were to be convicted of the state charges. That is not within the president's purview to pardon himself if he were to be re-elected. So he can pardon himself if he would be convicted on the federal cases, but not here in the state cases. Trump's lawyers condemned the incident in a statement Monday, writing, this was not a simple administrative mistake. A proposed indictment should only be in the hands of the district attorney's office, yet it somehow made its way to the clerk's office and was assigned a case number and a judge before the grand jury even deliberated. Later in the day, Reuters reported the clerk of court's office described a fictitious document circulating online without specifying whether it was the one listing criminal charges against Trump. The Epic Times also asked the court spokesman for clarification, but received no response. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And Georgia prosecutor Fannie Willis does have power that other state prosecutors normally don't. A former state prosecutor told NTD's Arlene Richards why. The RICO statute, or racketeer-influenced and corrupt organizations, is normally used to tackle organized crime. There are unique differences between Georgia's RICO law and the federal law. The federal statute, for instance, requires that prosecutors show proof that there is a threat of ongoing racketeering activity. In Georgia, only two related acts are needed to prove a pattern. So tell me, what can a Georgia prosecutor do under the Georgia RICO statute that she couldn't do under the federal RICO statute? In, uh, in the Georgia RICO case, because she has such free reign and because they have situations where their people may not necessarily know each other, uh, you, get to have, you get to have um, hearsay statements uh, in, in, introduced in these kinds of cases that are not normally allowed in, in a courtroom. And, he said hearsay is when a person testifies about what a third person told him. There are also some challenges. But these, uh, these cases can go on very, very long. If convicted under RICO in Georgia, Trump could face a mandatory five-year minimum sentence. Arlene Richards, NTD News. 
the Justice Department is skeptical about a request from former President Trump in the documents case. Trump's legal team has been fighting to get a secure facility reestablished at his Mar-a-Lago estate. On Monday, the Justice Department said the request is not needed or justified. They also mentioned the request is unusual for a case involving classified discovery. The Justice Department says Trump is seeking special treatment and called Mar-a-Lago a social club. Trump says he needs the secure facility to discuss the evidence in the case with his legal team. Trump's team said traveling to a secure facility elsewhere would create too great a burden for Trump and law enforcement. An FBI whistleblower's transcript testimony regarding an investigation into Hunter Biden was released yesterday. The House Oversight Committee interviewed the former FBI supervisor last month. He was responsible for opening the Bureau's investigation into the president's son and remains anonymous. The whistleblower testified that the 2020 transition team of then-president-elect Biden was tipped off about a planned FBI interview with his son Hunter Biden and that the interview never took place as a result. That corroborates allegations made by a former IRS investigator turned whistleblower Gary Shapley. The whistleblower said he understood why FBI headquarters had to inform the Secret Service headquarters, but not Biden's transition team. A retired Harvard law professor is questioning the legality of U.S. Attorney David Weiss's special counsel status in Hunter Biden's case. Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed Weiss to lead the investigation last week. Attorney Ellen Dershowitz told Fox Business that it's illegal. Here's Dershowitz yesterday. The regulation provides clearly that special counsel have to come from outside the government for good reason. What's so special about a special counsel is that he doesn't have to answer to the present administration. He's independent. A number of congressional Republicans are calling for Weiss to recuse himself. The Justice Department has not addressed the controversy. Coming up, we hear from an expert on how health care systems can protect themselves from cyber attacks. And a class action lawsuit has been filed against Hawaii utility companies. It alleges that power lines triggered the fire. We'll have that and more for you after the break. Welcome back. Some updates from Maui. At least 99 people are confirmed dead in the Maui wildfires. Officials are expected to begin identifying the victims today. Search teams with cadaver dogs have combed through 25% of the Lahaina disaster zone. Officials say perhaps hundreds more people are unaccounted for nearly a week after the disaster. Authorities hope to get through 85 to 90% of the disaster zone by this weekend. Maui County briefly relaxed rules allowing Lahaina residents back to their homes. However, that was suspended yesterday after curiosity seekers abused the system, clogging streets used by rescue workers. Officials have urged tourists to stay away from West Maui, but said other parts of the island remained open for business. Here's more on the tragedy in Maui. Desperation was growing in Maui on Monday for these residents. They'd been waiting for hours in long lines of traffic for temporary permits to get to scorched areas of the Hawaiian island they used to call home. We've got to get back to Lahaina. That's where we're from and born and raised, you know what I mean? And just got to get back to work so I can support my family, you know? And 
just losing our house, our car. It's been almost a week since the fast-moving fire leveled most of the historic town. But many residents were still unable to go back there due to the risks posed by possible hotspots and toxic fumes. Nothing can prepare you for what I saw during my time here. Federal Emergency Management Agency Administrator Deanna Criswell described at a White House briefing the long and hard road ahead to recovery. This is going to require every tool that we have in our toolbox. We are not going to be able to rely on all of the traditional programs that we do in the continental United States. And so we are working very closely with the governor to better understand all available options, whether that means longer term we bring in tiny houses or our transitional housing units to help him create the communities that he wants. The White House said President Joe Biden had discussed with Hawaii Governor Josh Green and Senator Mazia Hirono ways of housing displaced residents as well as longer term recovery efforts. It's a grim outlook for the island, with search teams finding more bodies on Monday as they resume the work of combing through the charred debris. Officials also say identifying the victims is a tough task, since the fire was so intense, even metal structures had melted in the heat. The blaze is set to be deadliest in the country in 100 years. It destroyed over 2,000 buildings, more than 80% of them residential. The fires caused an estimated $5.5 billion in damage. Officials haven't yet determined the cause of the wildfire, but a class action lawsuit has been filed against Hawaii utility companies. It alleges that power lines were brought down by high winds and triggered the fire. Hawaiian Electric Industries and three subsidiaries are named in the lawsuit. In a statement, it says that the firms failed to de-energize their power lines despite weather warnings. Utility companies in California, Oregon and Nevada turn off power during high winds to prevent fires. That's after a 2019 wildfire in California. Hawaiian Electric Vice President Jim Kelly did not comment on the case, but did say the company doesn't have a formal shutoff program in place. The Biden administration says it's focused on finding those still missing, while outrage intensifies over failures to warn residents. And today's Iris Tao has more from the White House. More than 100 people have been confirmed dead. That's as specialist teams continue to search for those missing in the ruins of the Maui wildfires. But questions are mounting over why the world's largest siren system stays silent when fires quickly spread into the neighborhood. I hear there no sirens went off, nothing, nothing. We just had to know that ourselves. It was fight or flight mm -hmm. with no warning whatsoever. The Hawaiian governor blamed fire damage to infrastructure, and the FEMA administrator said this. You know, I can't speak to the initial communications and the warning. Uh, what we are really focused on right now is making sure that we do have continuous communication to help people understand what resources are available. The state is launching a formal review into its emergency response, but some are also questioning a lack of comments from the president. People of Maui, Mr. President! The White House defended President Biden. This is something that the president takes very seriously. But a press secretary also confirms that President Biden has no plans to travel to Hawaii as of now, though she asked that we will hear more from him in the coming days. Reporting from the White House, Iris Howe, NTD News. Our thoughts go out to the victims and their families. Yes, and hopefully all those people were able to get the resources they need from FEMA and others. Mm. And questions linger over the recent cyber attack on a multi-state healthcare system. We hear from an expert on what to expect and what can be done. 
Joining me now is Andrew Stern, key CEO of Darkbox Security Systems. Thank you for coming on the show today, Andrew. Thanks for having me. As you know, the cyber attack caused many people's lives to be disrupted, with patients seeking the ER being diverted, elective surgeries suspended. The good news is the FBI is investigating, and they're looking into the cyber attack and prospect medical holding. So what are they going to be looking for, and are you confident they'll be able to bring the perpetrators to justice? Um, I, I, I'm very confident that, you know, they will eventually find out who the perpetrators are. Um, as far as, you know, bringing them to justice, um, you know, that, that really depends because, unfortunately, a lot of these cyber attacks um, are instigated from overseas. So, so that makes it a little more difficult on the justice side. Do we expect a ransomware payment to be involved here? Um, I believe so. Um, I, I do know that you know the the traditional aspect of ransomware these days is to not pay it. Um, but you know, in situations like this where you know we have you know lives on the line, especially with patients and uh, their care, um, you know that may be something that is possibly looked at. So, what do the hackers do with data involved in a breach like this? Yeah. So basically, what they do is. Um, they basically lock up the the data um, of the hospital, and in turn, that affects their operations. You know, if if the doctors, nurses, the staff, if they can't access um, specific data regarding the patient care, then you know they're not able to provide um, services such as operations and whatnot. And because of that, you know, this is a very significant. Uh, danger to patients, and then that's why you know the FBI is uh, personally involved. So, how can we better protect our healthcare systems from this? Yeah, so um, you know the the thing about cybersecurity is that it, it's an ongoing educational factor for all of us, and for organizations such as hospitals, um, they always have to you know continuously do risk assessments, um, make sure that. Uh, they're always doing their system updates. And another big thing that they need to do is make sure that they, ha they have network segmentation. So basically, uh, everything should not be running on one network, but um, it should be divided up into various networks. So if one does get taken over, then you know they're able to just shut down the one aspect. Uh, make sure all their staff have uh, you know, specific access controls uh, in place. You know, Some individuals do not need um, all the access to the various systems, um, and then make sure that they're always doing regular backups. Uh, this is extremely important because if you have um, all the data already backed up, you can shut things down and just uh, revert to the data that you already have. And so um, data backups, you know, if they're doing this um, at least bi-monthly, um, you know, that's good. And then um, make sure that they have an incident response plan uh, when something like this happens they need to know exact steps that they need to take uh, to quickly mitigate it andrew that's some very good advice on cyber hygiene there so andrew sternkey ceo of darkbox security systems i really appreciate your time great thanks for having me and evelyn hopefully the patients in connecticut where their systems are still down can get the care they need yeah hopefully it must be a lot of work to do everything on paper now yes what a transition and still to come, a doctor with firsthand experience of live organ harvesting in China speaks out. Stay tuned for shocking revelations about the gruesome industry.
Welcome back. Deaths by donation. Reports of surgeons turned executioners in China are nothing new. But for a Chinese doctor, it is his first time stepping forward with his real name to tell a deeply personal narrative accompanied by profound horror. Zhen Ji, a then-resident doctor at one of China's largest military hospitals, recounts how he witnessed a man's kidneys and eyes carved out for transplant while he was still alive. Now he's shedding light on China's horrifying forced organ harvesting industry. And just a warning, some viewers may find the following content disturbing. I was ordered to take one of his eyeballs by the soldier on the other side. And the nurse handed me a hemostat. I really couldn't stand it. And I said, I can't do it. I can't. The horror Zheng witnessed took place in 1994, inside a van guarded by armed soldiers, then staffed with five surgeons and nurses. He thought they were on a secret military mission near a prison around China's northeastern Dalian city. But what followed has stayed with him for decades. I looked at him. He was looking right at me. This man at my feet during the operation, he was really looking at me. His eyes were moving. Zheng says the man was no more than 18 years old, carried into the van by four soldiers, his limbs tightly bound by ropes. A doctor first sliced open the man's stomach, and two others extracted a kidney each. The man's legs twitched, his throat moved, but no sound came out. Then a doctor instructed Zheng to step on the man's legs and don't let him move. As I pressed down, his still warm body made me think he was alive. A surgeon took a scalpel and made a large incision directly under the xiphoid into the umbilical cord. When the abdomen opened, the intestines came out. And I was really terrified. Another surgeon pushed the intestines aside and retrieved a kidney. Then another got the second kidney. The head nurse swiftly placed both kidneys in a temperature-controlled box. But little did he know what happened in that van in 1994 would soon become an industrialized killing apparatus in China set up to extract organs from prisoners of conscience and sell them on demand. Within two decades, the mass-scale, state-sanctioned forced organ harvesting ballooned into a billion-dollar industry. This is absolutely egregious, and I do want to know more about what he has to say. Yes, and here we're sharing a shortened version, but you can watch the full interview on NTD's China in Focus program or visit our website at ntd.com. And yes, it is just truly horrifying, and it's no wonder that you see all these pushes for legislation to stop forced organ harvesting. Right, as it should be. And now we're getting to some short headlines from around the world. 
At least 30 people were killed and over 100 injured in a massive explosion at a gas station in Russia. That was in the Southern Republic of Dagestan yesterday. The blast occurred after a fire at a nearby car repair shop spread to the station. It took firefighters over three and a half hours to put out the blaze. Germany's foreign minister has abandoned a trip to the Indo-Pacific after a problem with her government plane. Annalena Baerbock set off from Berlin on Sunday on what was supposed to be a nearly week-long trip. But a mechanical problem with her aging German Air Force Airbus A340's landing flaps meant that it had to turn back to Abu Dhabi twice. Thousands of Bosnians took to the streets yesterday to demand authorities act to curb violence against women. It comes after a man shot and killed his ex-wife last week while streaming it live on Instagram. He killed two more people before killing himself. The woman had reported harassment and violence to the authorities. The UK has arrested and charged three suspected spies for Russia. The BBC reports the defendants are Bulgarian nationals who were detained in February during a major national security investigation. They've lived in Britain for years and worked a variety of jobs. Yes, and it's just so important to protect women. Yeah, absolutely. Vulnerable people. Vulnerable, yeah, yeah, in a lot of um, developing countries as well. We just spoke about it in an interview. Right. But moving on into the break now. Yes, and two school boards in Southern California have defied the state's transgender school policy. Teachers in these schools are now required to notify parents if their child identifies as transgender. Texas parents getting back lost time with their children thanks to a new law. But what does lost time mean? Some Texas fathers are helping us understand that story after the break. Good to have you back. In Southern California, two schools have recently approved policies that require teachers to tell parents if their child identifies as transgender. This contradicts state guidance. We go to entities Jack Bradley with the details. Jack, what can you, uh, what can you tell us? Thanks, Evelyn. Two Southern California school districts recently implemented a policy that requires schools to notify parents if their child identifies as transgender. Chino Valley and most recently Murrieta Unified's new policies require their schools to notify parents if their child seeks to change their name, pronouns, or asks to play in sports or use bathrooms or changing rooms that do not match their sex. To dive into this, I spoke with Republican Assemblyman Bill Isaley. Uh, about a year ago, the California Department of Education, through a frequently asked questions section, put out some regulations that said, schools should withhold gender transition plans from parents, that they should not tell the parents unless they get explicit consent from the minor, regardless of age. Um, this regulation was put out under the superintendent, Tony Thurman. It had no debate. There's no law that requires this. There's no court case. They totally just made it up and they sent it out to school districts acting like it was legally required. So that's where all this really started. And doesn't this regulation or, or guidance rather violate uh, parents' constitutional rights to have authority over their kids prior to have precedence over the schools. The Supreme Court has continuously ruled over the last hundred years that parents have a constitutional right to raise their children. 
that they are best positioned to decide what's in their best interest, not the state, not the government. And that's totally flipped with this policy. So, yes, it's absolutely constitutional, unconstitutional. And there's been pushback on these schools passing these uh, policies. Um, some parents who are opposed to them think that uh, schools are a safe haven from parents who uh, don't agree with transgenderism. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think uh, I think what's really happening here is they're trying to indoctrinate your kids and they don't want the parents to get involved in the indoctrination process. So what they're doing is they're they're setting it up on this transgender issue, but believe me, it's gonna cover many other issues. Um, but number one, what authority or power does the school have to withhold information from, from parents? Absolutely none. So regardless of the reason, you cannot do it. And I spoke to Chino Valley Unified School District Board President, Sonia Shaw, who modeled her district's policy after Assembly Bill 1314, written by Assemblyman Asaley. There is a lot of things in Sacramento trying to divide the families, and it has to do with even the education. I feel like they're using education as a pathway, and we see our Department of Ed, we see the bills coming down. There, a lot of it has to do with the sexualization and the confusion um, towards our children. So with this, it kind of pushes back and it shows Sacramento, we're not going to stand for what they are doing. Um, so to me, it was putting safeguards in place because secrets should never be kept from the parent. Can you elaborate more on what the parents were saying to you in regards to this kind of policy? Absolutely. So the parents wanted transparency with a lot of things. Right now we have kids. Um, it's really sad because we have kids that are saying they're fluid. They go from one gender to the next. And prior to the last, you know, four or five years, it was always the school districts working alongside with the parents. I mean, if the kid gets a, a bump, we're calling the parents. If the kid, you know, um, throws up at school, you're calling the parents. If the kid got a bad grade or has behavioral issues, you call the parents. I don't understand why something like this would be an exception. I think it's really sad that they're trying to make exceptions and it just shows their narrative and their direction and their push and their agenda. Shaw says more school boards across California are considering implementing similar policies. Evelyn, back to you. Thank you, Jack. Yeah, and she makes a good point that historically, schools were responsible for informing the parents of other behavioral issues, like if they're bullying someone, or if they're falling behind in school, so their gender identity would be another issue that they would have to convey. Right, and if you think about it, parents should be assumed to be the number one person of trust, right? So who else to consult other than the parents because they should be knowing the kids best. Yes, that is a good point. They know what's best for their children. Texas parents getting back lost time with their children thanks to a new law. But what does lost time mean? Some Texas fathers are helping us understand. Here's the story. Through about 12 years of family court, 43 plus false allegations, Robert Garza says his ex-wife used false accusations to keep their children away from him. Then in March this year, he testified in front of the Texas Senate as a dad and as a parental rights advocate. I chose to come out with a bill called Time Taken, Time Back. It was in the Texas Senate, and it was SB 718. This Texas law by Senator Angela Paxton will give non-custodial parents back lost time with their children, the same amount of time wrongfully taken away in divorce court orders. The other thing that it does is it disincentivizes the person making a false allegation in the first place. It could be a silver lining for many divorced Texas fathers fighting to stay in their kids' lives. Some say they're experiencing parental alienation, which according to the National Center for State Courts, is when one parent intentionally displays to a child unjustified negativity aimed at the other parent. 
I have no contact with my sons at all. I don't know their status. I, I don't hear from them. I actually didn't even know where my sons uh, lived. Dad of two, Jeff Younger's custody case has been under national spotlight. He says his ex-wife has been transitioning his then eight, now 11-year-old son James into a girl. He says earlier this year, a Texas judge let her move to California with his sons. Stripped me of all notification requirements. I'm never notified of any medical, education, or anything. It's right after California began its new sanctuary law to allow parents from restrictive states to flee there and transition their children legally. My ex-wife is currently enjoined from doing any kind of hormone treatments or surgeries on my son because Texas is a state which does not allow um, affirming surgeries. California will, will never repatriate my sons to Texas. Joseph Villarreal says his ex-wife filed restraining orders against him with false allegations. He just wants to see his son again. It's been three years. I've heard his voice three times. I've seen a pic uh, picture of him twice. These Texas fathers are standing behind a nationwide parental rights movement. Advocate Jeffrey Morgan says in many cases, family courts are not putting children's best interests at heart. It's the best place for the children is to be reared with both parents together in the same home. They need both parents. I came from a broken household. I had no business being around my father whenever I was a kid. As a grown man now, I can see the impact that it had on me. Morgan also says divorce hurts a child's overall well-being and future. Who's more likely to join a gang? Who's more likely to drop out of school? Who's more likely to never even hit college or the ladder of success? These are children of divorce or children that come into being out of never formed families. The law will take effect September 2023. Parents across the state hope it can shed light on their fight against false allegations and parental alienation. NTD News, Texas. Yes, father figures are very important in a child's life. And there is a lot of research on this, right? Well, we have to go to break now. So coming up, prosecutors say Sam Bankman-Fried allegedly used stolen F FTX funds for political donations. Entity's business host Don Ma brings us more on that case. And more women are dying from excessive alcohol consumption. We speak to a cardiologist about this. And Tokyo has started a trial AI translation program in one of its busiest stations. Hear what customers there are saying. Welcome back. Updates on the FTX scandal. According to federal prosecutors, Sam Bankman-Fried used money he stole from customers of his cryptocurrency exchange to make more than $100 million in political campaign contributions before the 2022 U.S. midterm elections. We're bringing in entity business host Don Ma to give us the details. Don, thanks for coming on this morning. Can you tell us what happened with Bankman-Fried? Yes, yeah, so an amended indictment accused the 31-year-old of instructing two FTX executives to evade contribution limits by donating to Democrats and Republicans, but mainly to Democrats. He also instructed them to conceal where the money came from. The indictment said that he used the donations as leverage for influence. And then he, in, in turn, lobbied Congress and agencies to support legislation to make it easier for FTX to continue to accept customer deposits. Um, Bankman-Fried faces seven counts of conspiracy and fraud over FTX's collapse. 
But actually, federal prosecutors are dropping this campaign finance charge because the Bahamas said it never intended to extradite him on that count. Now, for a context, the Bahamas is where FTX was based and where Bankman Freed was arrested in December 2022. Yes, I see how that technicality plays in there. And Sam Bankman-Fried will now prepare for his fraud trial from a Brooklyn jail. So what happened there, Don? Right, so U.S. District Judge Louis Kaplan in Manhattan ruled on Friday that Bankman-Fried will be jailed after he revoked his bail. Now, this is because he found probable cause that Bankman-Fried tempered with witnesses at least twice. So what that means is basically in a, in a nutshell, the judge accused him of trying to dissuade people from testifying against him. So now, as you mentioned, he's headed to a jail and this jail is notorious for poor conditions. So apparently it's been plagued by things like power outages and maggots in inmates food. Well, inmates certainly deserve to have good conditions. So thanks for bringing that to light with us, Don. Any news for us? Sure. Um, in addition, gas prices is hitting the highest in about 10 months. This is according to AAA. The cost of regular is above $4 a gallon in 11 states, and others are nearing that threshold as well, and the national average is 385. So oil prices are up because Russia and Saudi Arabia have been cutting the global supply. And in other news, some tips on donating for Maui fire victims. So make sure your money doesn't go to online scammers. Here are some tips to avoid that. First, take extra steps to make sure the charity or organization is legit. Be wary of any kind of emotional appeal that is demanding that you give right away. And tip two is to go with organizations already on the ground, especially because many roads are closed and transportation to the island is limited. And a final tip is beware of any red flags. Anything from requests for your personal information like social security number to unusual payment methods like gift cards. And that's it from me, Kevin. Well, thanks for helping those good Samaritans make their donations count. Don Ma, host of NTD Business, I appreciate it. Thank you. Students are cheating with ChatGPT, and one student's essay, a teacher found the text, I'm just an AI language model, I don't have an opinion on that. Yes, the poor kid forgot to delete that part. Teachers are trying to come up with ways to AI-proof their courses, but there may not be a way. Entity's fake quarter has more for us. Cheating is nothing new, but with smart AI programs like ChatGPT, which can write a perfect essay in three seconds, cheating is now fast, easy, and free, giving teachers a headache. There are AI tools that can detect ChatGPT's writing, but... They're not capable of finding all the flaws. I know that people on the front lines are kind of tearing their hair out about how persistent the problem is and how much worse it's getting because the tools are just getting better. Educator Mike Bergen also says the tools are frequently wrong, meaning students who didn't cheat are falsely accused of cheating. There is no foolproof way to detect cheating. Be really engaged. Close read work. Know your students. Know their writing styles. Know their vocabulary levels. Know how they tell stories. That's the first thing that's going to be a flag. If a teacher reads something and says, this doesn't sound like my student, it may not be. Forbes columnist Derek Newton says the most valuable tool is teacher engagement. 
They should tell students how ChatGPT should and should not be used and then pay close attention to their work. I have a teacher friend who teaches uh, high school English. And if a student is a C student and then the next day they're able to, to summarize Macbeth perfectly, uh, chances are they are using ChatGPT. Jeff Hughes is the author of How to Raise Smart Kids with AI. He sees teachers checking students' work by using existing technology. The revisions feature in Microsoft Word. Now what they're looking at is turning on revisions. So a student would have to show this is my first draft. These are the corrections I made. This is the thought process. And that's available right now. The revisions feature can also tell when something is copied and pasted. So a student can't simply copy and paste a chunk of text from ChatGPT. Bay Quarter, NTD News. Well, if that program Zero GPT doesn't work, then one way parents or students, teachers can do it is just by asking the student, hey, what about this part in your essay? And if they have no answer, well, then you caught them. You know, that's a good solution. But interestingly enough, that seems to be one limitation of AI, right? They cannot tell the teacher if the student wrote something with AI. Yeah, another challenge it presents. Well. <sighs> and up next, more women are dying from excessive alcohol consumption. We speak to a cardiologist. And it translates almost a dozen languages in real time. Is this Tokyo Railway's use of AI the wave of the future? That's after the break. Welcome back. AI technology continues to become more common in our daily lives. A Tokyo train station is now using it to shatter the language barrier. Let's take a look. Tokyo is the most populous city in the world and a sought-after travel destination. Recently, the Cebu Shinjuku train station rolled out an AI program. It translates speech into 11 different languages, including English, Mandarin, French, and of course Japanese. The display we have introduced can automatically translate between Japanese and other languages. When customers speak in a foreign language, the station attendant can see it in Japanese. And when the station attendant speaks Japanese, customers can read the sentences in their own language. The program helps with directions, tourist information, and assistance with train tickets. So far, travelers have found the clear display both convenient and useful. Google Translate isn't always available because you don't always have Wi-Fi everywhere you go. So places like this, it's also much faster than pulling up your phone, typing everything out, and sort of showing it, and there's a misunderstanding. Having it like this, clear on the screen, it's, uh, it's really nice. The railway chose this station for its trial run since it serves over 100,000 people daily and is one of Tokyo's most confusing hubs. The program is undergoing a three-month test before being placed at other stations. And while some opponents of AI oppose the lack of human interaction, this hybrid of both human and AI may negate that concern. It might sound a bit weird, but like you feel safe immediately because you know there is a human on the other side. So you take your time to explain what you need and you will know that they will understand what you need. AI technology has recently become a hotly debated topic. However, here in Tokyo, travelers find its application to be something both timely and useful. Useful, yeah, right. Well, you'd need that in a cosmopolis like Tokyo. 
Oh, absolutely. And also a country where you can absolutely not guess what it actually says. <laughs> right. I find it really helpful, yeah. Yeah. All right, and to end the program, we have some health news for you. A recent study found more women are drinking themselves to death now. And alcohol is more common among women than men. Previous studies have shown that, um, that women tend to drink more. I spoke to a cardiologist to find out about the effects of alcohol on your health and how much is too much. Joining me now is cardiologist Dr. Fami Farah. Good to have you back on the show. Now let's talk about the new study that shows that alcohol deaths are on the rise when it comes to women. So why do you think that's the case? Uh, there are several factors involved. Uh, you know, alcohol in general uh, can cause a lot of damaging effects to the heart. And you know, one of them is heart failure. Alcohol, uh, excessive consumption of alcohol can weaken the heart muscle and there's something called cardiomyopathy which is a form of heart failure and that can cause the pump essentially the pump of the heart doesn't work as efficiently so the heart fails and that in turn can increase the mortality uh, in women you know like we are seeing an increased uh, rate of death uh, as a result of alcohol consumption probably due to the increased rate of alcohol consumption and the various uh, side effects related to that now how much do the, those women drink that, you know, that death is a result, as in, are we talking about severe alcoholism? Not necessarily. Um, so the impact of alcohol can um, vary from individual to individual. Uh, of course, excessive alcohol consumption can impact anyone, and they don't necessarily have to have a genetic predisposition. However, there there are groups of people where they don't have to have a ton of alcohol, just uh, moderate uh, degree alcohol consumption can lead to damage to their organ system, especially the heart. Now, before death actually comes into play, what are some other symptoms of excessive drinking before that that can be warning signs? So excessive uh, drinking alcohol symptoms usually come from the damage it causes to some of the organ system. So let's start with the heart. So one of the common things that happens with alcohol is rhythm problems. So people can have palpitations, shortness of breath, anxiety, feelings of anxiety as a result of the heart rate uh, going high and having arrhythmia, but also heart failure. As I was explaining earlier, they can have swelling in their legs, shortness of breath, just fatigue in general. They'll see skin differences as well. They'll uh, see, you know, uh, something called spider veins uh, that'll start popping up in different areas of their skin. Uh, the liver is one of the other organs that's affected by alcohol. So they can start seeing jaundice of their skin, which is yellowing of the skin. That's usually in higher level liver damage due to alcohol. So it can really uh, range from um, just having shortness of breath, swelling and palpitations all the way to jaundice having liver failure. Um, so the, the scale is wide. Hmm. Now, is there a rule of thumb of how frequently people can have that glass of wine and still be healthy? Um, that is a tough question to answer. You know, in the past, we used to say one alcoholic beverage a day for uh, women uh, and men. But in the recent past, in the last couple of years, we have had studies that come came out and showed that no amount of alcohol is good for the heart. Uh, and so, on that note, I would say abstinence is best. But that being said, you know, every once in a while, everybody, you know, people do want to enjoy a glass of wine, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So moderation is key. Mm. Interesting points. Thank you so much, Dr. Fami Farah. I really appreciate your insights. Thanks for having me. 
you know, Evelyn, it is alarming that even moderate alcohol consumption can be a big risk. So thanks for bringing this issue to light. Right. It was definitely news to me, too. I was still under the assumption that one glass of wine is fine every day or, yeah. So because that's definitely something that was that was repeated to, or that was the common assumption. Yes, a and lot of new in information here. Right, so interesting that she uh, debunked that. All right, thanks for watching today. That's it for today. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. That's our email address if you'd like to write us. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.